Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Stephen, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Pleasure to be here, Aaron. We're in Sydney, recording. Normally, uh, you'd be down in Melbourne, coming and visiting me at the office, but it's great to be here in Sydney. It's a lovely day. I'm hoping for people that haven't listened to our previous conversations, I feel like we've worked together a lot over the last few years in these discussions, uh, and it's been great to see the Aorus brand grow over time. But for people that are new to the show or new to your brand and what you've created and the way you invest, can you give us the bird's eye view of how you think about investing in business and how that's expressed through through the business? Sure, Owen. So we run a very concentrated, long-only portfolio of international businesses. And at the essence, we consider ourselves business owners and we participate in the growth in capital value of great businesses. And for us, great high quality businesses have a few defining features. Firstly, they've been around a long time, so they're time tested, which has become particularly important in recent years where a lot of businesses are encountering tough times for the first time. Mm. Secondly, they're consistently profitable businesses. They're all weather businesses, not fair weather businesses. Thirdly, they're leading businesses. They are number one in their mar- market um, and they are leading their industry for definable reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourthly, they grow. You know, great businesses don't tread water and it's hard to become more valuable over time if you don't grow. So great businesses grow. They win more customers. They do more things for existing customers. And they don't only grow with their peers, they grow faster than their peers. If you're in a growing market and you're growing in line with everybody else, that doesn't feel so special. We're looking for businesses that outgrow their peer group. And by owning only 15 businesses like this, it allows us to set our quality criteria very high. Mm. Um, and the, we can be very demanding across all of those quality features and valuation. The price you pay, of course, matters a great deal to your final outcome as investors. Mm. In the past, we've spoken about companies like Jack Henry. We spoke about uh, Accenture and many different businesses like this. And we're going to bring one more to this discussion today, which is really interesting. A lot of people can relate to this business. But there is also the owner's manual, which I'll direct people to on the website, the new Aeros website, which looks great, by the way. Uh, The owner's manual sets down all of these criteria and how you think about things like portfolio construction, not just why you invest, where you invest, but how you invest, which is really illuminating. 
the thing that catches people off guard though, Stephen, is that, you know, you've been doing this for a very long time. We spoke just off air that if you included the, the track record where you previously were, um, you'd be in the top 1% of investors, which is incredible. Um, but what catches people off guard is that you do have that portfolio of 15 companies. And yet people are so wired to think that, oh, only 15 companies, this must be high risk. Can you maybe talk about that uh, in the context of what we've seen recently with volatility, the market, inflation, interest rates, et cetera? Uh, well, firstly, uh, thank you for the reference to our owner's manual. We always think it's important if we were sitting in your shoes or the shoes of a prospective investor, they would like to know uh, how we invest, how we think, how we define ourselves as a business, you know, uh, how we think mm. about success. And so that's all in our owner's manual. Look, in terms of uh, concentration, uh, one side of the, the coin, the two-sided coin, if you like, is all the things that, we, that you won't see in our portfolio. And once you think about um, the, uh, those two, two sides of the coin, I think it starts to make a lot of sense why our portfolio, at least as we think about it, is low risk. And over the last few years, I think that's been borne out. We don't own businesses with a lot of debt. We don't own businesses um, in emerging markets where the government can play a big role in the way industries operate, uh, which we've seen in recent years in Russia particularly. Uh, we don't own businesses uh, that are competitively weak, that go mm. backwards in difficult periods like we've seen in the last few years. Uh, we don't own businesses that are aggressive acquirers where big M&A often causes companies to trip up. Uh, we don't own businesses that are very narrow. They do one thing in one place. Yeah, biotechnology businesses being a good example. They're inherently fragile businesses. Um, we don't own businesses that make a lot of money in good years and give it all back in bad years, these, these um, cyclical fair-weather businesses. So for those reasons, our portfolio has stayed away from the many pockets of the market through 2022 and the, the couple of prior years where challenging periods have caused severe losses for certain types of businesses, uh, a lot of those businesses that we've mm. we just mentioned. And as we uh, look into next year, higher interest rates start to matter a lot more and staying away from businesses with a lot of debt, I think will help keep our portfolio you know, away from those stressed parts of the market. So how we, we for us, it's a very conservative way of, 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 of investing. Um, as you layer on all those exacting quality features and price. If you pay too much for a good business, you'll end up with a poor outcome. And so concentration as we uh, execute it in our approach is we like to think is a very low risk way to invest. Mm. Can you talk to us about or share with us your views on how companies grow? Because I was reading in the owner's manual just this morning again, about the idea of how you think about growth. And that's still quite unique. A lot of investors think that growth is very strong, you know, double digit, top line growth is very exciting. Can you talk about, you, you mentioned the, the capital of the business, the, the business sustainably growing. Can you talk about how you think about that? Well, that, that's so important. I think this is where compounding becomes very powerful. Uh, so a few, few parts of that. One is the durability of growth. There are a lot of businesses that grow rapidly. It's a bit like a, like a sprinter and then you run out of gas and mm. um, the growth doesn't last nearly as fast as people, or long as people think, number one. Number two, when businesses grow fast, sometimes uh, they cause themselves problems. If they're growing at 20%, you've got to hire a lot of people. Uh, the systems just aren't built oftentimes for accommodating growth at that rate. Uh, so sustainability, durability, the risk around growth. You know, so for us, the sweet spot's generally businesses growing um, on an pre-acquisition rate, typically between five and 10%. Right. Uh, if you're growing, you know, um, we call it GDP plus growth. If you're growing less than 4%, it probably, you're not really 
the capital value of the business is not growing at a rate that we seek uh, in order to generate an attractive outcome for investors. So there's two, there's the, the growth has got two elements. One is the, the natural rate of growth the business is achieving without acquisitions, and that's doing more business for existing customers, winning more customers and doing it at high rates of profitability. And then uh, once you've done that, then the business has got excess capital. Some of it's typically returned to investors as dividends. Some of it might be used to repurchase shares and some of it might make acquisitions. So it's the, the return that that business generates on um, making acquisitions and uh, the share repurchases that is an, the second of the twin variables about um, its, its EPS growth over time. Mm. If the business pays um, high multiples and earns a poor return on its acquisitions, that will undermine growth. Mm. If they pay a silly price when they're buying back their own shares, that will undermine growth. So if they, they grow organically mm. at high rates of return on capital and they, they reinvest the excess capital at high rates of return, um, then you've got a very attractive proposition. And if that's done at rates it's between 5 and 10%, as most businesses across the ARS portfolio will find, then we believe that can be uh, can compound at very attractive rates for investors. So there, we're going to do two of these discussions, um, and they're going to be split up, Stephen. But I'm hoping – I asked you if you could bring – two companies to the table so one in each episode and given this is the first episode i think this is fitting that we might talk about a company that people know quite well which is costco um, we know it here in australia because there are these super supermarkets around these big box supermarkets around uh, particularly the capital cities so maybe if you can start off Stephen, by just telling us a little bit about the business um, and imagine what you feel like when you walk through the door Sure. Well, for some Australians who would have been through a Costco and many perhaps who haven't, when you walk through the door, it's a very different experience than going into a Coles or Woolworths. Mm. Uh, firstly, Costco sells a very wide variety of products. So you'll see uh, flat screen televisions. Costco is the largest seller in the United States of fine wine, of jewellery, um, clothing. So in addition to your, your groceries and your non-perishables, there's outdoor furniture and barbecues. Uh, they're also America's largest travel agent. Um, they have a large food court. So it's a very wide variety of, of uh, products on offer. It's a very large space. Uh, part of what people love about it and some customers find frustrating is the sense of discovery. There are no signs in the aisles and so people have got to take their huge trolleys up and down these huge aisles and inevitably they find some things that they never thought that they needed and they certainly didn't come into the store looking to buy and they stack up their trolleys with lots of things. So they end up walking out the store with a lot more, spending a lot more money, uh, but getting some great, great bargains along the way. And what's in the store changes frequently. So people know that if I don't buy it today, perhaps it won't be here next time I come. Uh, and it's a good reason to come next time because there'll be some unexpected bargains. Mm. Uh, so all of those make it uh, for lots of Costco members uh, a very, very uh, stimulating, exciting uh, shopping experience with lots of unexpected bargains. Mm. I know the feeling when you walk in, and at least my experience has been the first experience is the, the flat screen TVs, the nice items as you walk in, and then you've got to push past them to get through to the, the groceries and the other types of things that you're looking for. And it's that experience of, wow, when you first walk through the door. I find that fascinating. Yeah, that's right. There will be some some popular items at the front, uh, and then maybe there's also a sense of it's overwhelming because it's so big. Yeah. Um, so which is why people don't shop there every week, but they might go there you know once a month or once a quarter, 
uh, and typically spend um, a, lot, a lot more on these infrequent purchases and get some great bargains along the way. Can you talk us through, I guess, the business, what, how it fits in with a lot of the criteria? Maybe we'll just discuss this and I'll come back with a few questions. Uh, so let's talk about Costco and it embodies a lot of the features we just talked about in terms of growth. Uh, it's proven to be very durable and they've grown, grown at an attractive rate since the business was founded in the early 1980s. So there's a few unusual things about uh, Costco as a place to shop. Firstly, mm-hmm. you have to be a member, a paying member in order for the right to shop there. And members will typically pay 60 US dollars or I think in Australia, 100 US dollars, 100 Australian dollars per year. Uh, for the right to shop in Costco. And there's about 110 million paying members of Costco worldwide. But once you walk through the door with your membership, then you expect high quality items on the shelf at good value. And that's been, it's a very resonant proposition in the environment that we're in at the moment when people are looking for value. Mm. Um, and it's a very proven to be a very resonant proposition through other times as well. So in the United States, Costco is the second largest retailer after Walmart, and it's a business where size and scale is enormously advantageous. They just they buy a lot of stuff, and it's allowed them to manage difficult supply chains the last couple of years more effectively than their peers. It's allowed them to manage inflation more effectively than their peers. And they grow their number of stores in the US a couple of percent per year, and then right now there's about 585 stores. It's a business that's highly, highly unusual in that it's been able to take a successful retail concept from one country to another. And that uh, infrequently happens. We've seen with the likes of Bunnings, oftentimes a successful retailer goes overseas and thinks, well, I can replicate in another country what's worked for me in in this country. Uh, And oftentimes the the cultural differences, the competition, the regulation, um, the consumer preferences are, are different enough that exporting a retail concept doesn't work. But Costco has done it well in many, many countries. Uh, as you mentioned, they've got successful warehouse stores in a, right across in every state in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, in very different places like South Korea, in China, uh, in France, Spain, the UK, in, um, in Mexico uh, and Japan, where consumer preferences are vastly different. The size of the cars that people drive around when they've shopped in a store is very different. Uh, but it's worked well everywhere, and it really comes back to providing high-quality products at value prices. Do you think that online is a threat to Costco? Um, it hasn't proven to be. About 10% of the sales are online, okay. uh, and they've they've probably been late to embrace online, uh, but they're getting increasingly good at it. A lot of what Costco sells is inherently you know, large items, uh, which the... Uh, the transportation costs don't lend themselves well to doing effectively online, uh, but uh, more and more, in fact, Costco a couple of years ago purchased its own um, what they call last mile distribution network in the United States so that they can take control of getting big and bulky items like outdoor furniture and barbecues uh, from the warehouse to customers' homes and oftentimes having the people to then install uh, unbox televisions and install them in customers' homes, which people appreciate. Mm. I should mention one of the magics of the Costco formula is much like Aorus, is its, sim- its simplicity. They have only 3,800 items on the shelf. Now you contrast that with a Walmart, which has about 110,000 different items. You can see vastly different complexity. So it allows Costco to channel its vast buying power across many, many fewer items. Uh, and it's much simpler to manage procuring and distributing and stocking fewer items. So the, the, the model is inherently much more effective and much more efficient, um, and it's allowed them to operate 
very profitably, even though the markup or the gross margin that they charge on these items is much lower mm. than what their competitors charge. Mm. Uh, obviously, one of the things that is really important for these businesses, you talked about acquisitions before uh, in the lead up to this about how they can trip over themselves. When it comes to a company like Costco, can you talk about how you think about the growth of the business um, and how management have executed? Well, I think what's helped make Costco a very durable growth story is how um, thoughtful and patient it is and that it's been almost exclusively done uh, what they call organically without acquisition. Now, they did purchase a distribution in, uh, business, but when they open stores, they don't buy other retailers and rebrand them Costco. They do it themselves, which allows them to be very thoughtful about real estate locations, very thoughtful about hiring managers to run the stores and preserve what is a very, very defined and special culture. Mm. Um, and um, when they're entering new countries, you know, perhaps like Australia some years ago, very thoughtful about, you know, will our model work here? How do we have to structure our proposition to make it work well? Uh, so it's proven to be durable because it's patient and thoughtful and they have never entered a country where they subsequently had to pack up and go home because it didn't work. That's the success rate of their growth has been very high. Mm. When you, we, we spoke previously about a business called Tractor Supply, which um, is a fascinating business. And I'd, I'll put a link in the show notes for people to go back and uh, listen and watch that one. But I'm curious, when you do your research into a business like Costco, how do you, how, how do you work with analysts and how do your analysts go about actually researching it? Do you, as far as I know, the team are generalists um, but I'm just curious, how do you find an idea? I mean, this one might be hiding in plain sight, but how do you find it? Well, sometimes quantitative financial screens can be helpful. Uh, other times, just observation, as you said, mm. um, and other times, just wide reading. But I think also uh, the, the proof points, what we're looking for is the, the proof points through time. Has the business been able to grow successfully through a variety of different economic and competitive conditions? What do we know about um, in a competitive environment like retail, how differentiated their proposition is. Now, a few of the proof points we'd find in Costco are across a widely recognised annual survey of retail customer satisfaction in the United States. You know, Costco ranks first, hmm. uh, Amazon ranks second, hmm. and Walmart ranks 13th. Uh, so that's pretty powerful, and it's been very consistently right at the top of the tree. Um, secondly, the the people in the store is obviously very important to the customer experience. The retention rate of Costco's store employees is significantly higher than a peer average. Once people have been there for a year, um, the annual attrition rate is less than 10%, uh, which is half an industry average. Hmm. Um, so the culture, uh, how they manage their people is, is differentiated, which means that this, um, it's a much more, you have fewer people who have, haven't been at the store for very long, it's more efficient if you, you get a superior customer experience because people have been in the store for longer. And because the business is growing, it creates career opportunities. Mm. Uh, part of the culture is that they don't hire laterally, they only promote from within. So any person you know, in the business knows that right up to the CEO, everybody started in my role, which is on the, the warehouse floor and every opportunity in front of it, every position ahead of me is an opportunity for me. If I do well, I can progress. Um, so it encourages people to, to stay, work hard and benefit from a promote from within culture. Mm, that's really interesting. I didn't know that about the, the team members um, and everyone there is really helpful, kind of like the Bunnings experience here in Australia where uh, everyone's just so helpful and they seem to know everything about everything. Uh, 
but there's also there's also retention. I know that you think about this a lot. The retention rates for memberships as well is also a key thing for Costco, and that membership is crucial. I think it's more like a psychological thing as well, um, because you buy a ticket, you know, to the fate, and you have to go. Right? Uh, how do you think about that membership in the context of the business as well? Um, when we think about business quality, we, we look for a high retention rate of happy customers. And, and so, as I just mentioned, the customer satisfaction rate for Costco members is best in the industry, mm. uh, as is the retention rate. So 92% of their members each year renew their membership. And uh, as the most recent quoted figure, it's never been higher. Mm. Um, and so through the pandemic, people have got happier and they've stayed Costco members for longer. Um, and... Uh, there, there are more more members. There are 6% more members, 6 million more members today than there were 12 months ago. And so Costco is doing hmm. more business with happier, stickier members. Uh, those are the ingredients for a successful growing business. How do, you, how do you go about valuing a business like Costco? We've spoken in the past, I think one of the quotes that you had in the past, which was fantastic, Stephen, was sometimes a discounted cash flow analysis it's like the Hubble telescope. One minute you can be looking at a completely different galaxy if you change one input. How do you, how do you think about the, the valuation of a business like Costco? I think that really the three key variables are how much faster than an average business is it growing? Mm-hmm. How longer will that excess growth persist for? And thirdly, how risky is it? And across all those dimensions, we think Costco ranks very highly. Um, the, the excess growth is not dramatic, but we think it's very durable. We think we can project out many, many years and it'll still be growing faster at high rates of profitability than an average business. Mm-hmm. And we think the risk around that is very low, the business risk, um, the, the balance sheet it has, it owns almost all of its own stores, which is unusual for a retailer. Mm. And it has billions of dollars of cash on the balance sheet. And when we think about management risk, where it's a, it's a low it's a management team that's unlikely to steer the business off course by being suddenly impatient and doing a big acquisition. It's all in the features that constitute risk for us. We think Costco ranks very, the very low end of the spectrum. And for those reasons, it warrants a high multiple relative to its earnings today. Mm, that's a great answer. Um, so one of the things, Stephen, that I've seen pr- proliferate our industry is um, more fund managers like yourself coming direct to the retail investors, I don't like to use that word, but retail investors, but to direct to investors and saying, hey, you can invest with us, it's simple. And one of the steps that you've taken is to make the fund available or the funds available via the ASX. So can you talk through why you did that and how it came together? Uh, Sure, so uh, we're we're anticipating that in February, two of our uh, share classes of our international fund unit trust will be available to invest in directly through the ASX. Uh, and the reason that we want to do that is to make our, our strategy easy to invest in uh, for more investors. Mm-hmm. Um, what we don't want to do is create additional strategies where you're a single strategy fund manager, but we like our strategy to be broadly available. Uh, so we have our unit trust, mm-hmm. uh, which is on lots of investment platforms, uh, but we also know that not every investor likes to invest that way and making it available to uh, purchase units in through the ASX is an attractive entry point for lots of Lots of investors. It's simple. It's one click, mm. um, and um, that it's um, th- then they will will benefit from a, an established unit trust that's now become much easier to invest in. Yeah, I've got to admit that um, having the ability just to invest in a fund like yours directly inside my brokerage account is so much easier. Um, obviously, the wealth side of the industry has the platforms as you speak of, but even I think there's a slow 
transition amongst some of those groups back to the ASX and to very simple, um, straightforward brokerage accounts where you can get in and out pretty quickly um, if you want to. So um, I'll put a link in the show notes once again to all of that because I know how these things are not easy to do and uh, you've pulled it off, which is fantastic. But the final question that I have for this episode, and we will, we will be back with another one uh, talking about another company, which is equally as interesting, which is why do you think it's important to focus on business fundamentals over forecasts? So what I mean by that is a lot of what we read, a lot of what we hear and see, maybe even on this podcast channel, is people prognosticating about the future. There's a, a view, uh, and I think this is going to happen uh, in the next one, two, three, four, five years. How do you think about that in contrast to the fundamentals of the business? Uh, well, I think you're absolutely right, Owen, and the front pages or the business pages of the paper encourage us to think short term. They encourage us to think as investors about macroeconomic variables. Um, and the, look, the, the way that we think about that is that uh, forecasting the future is inherently um, a, a low probability outcome. We just not the, the, there are lots of stats to tell you that forecasting all the mm. variables that people focus on, whether it's inflation, monetary policy, economic growth, political outcomes, uh, it's very difficult to do well repeatedly. Uh, but it's also for most businesses, or certainly the businesses that we seek to invest in, a lot less important to their long-term outcomes than the front pages of the paper would encourage you to think. So the businesses like Costco that we just talked about, uh, whether interest rates are a bit higher or a bit lower, won't matter a bit about its long-term outcomes. Uh, who's in the White House, um, um, whether, the, whether the economy is growing or, or shrinking or inflation is a bit higher or a bit lower. Uh, that won't be what determines the long-term success of the business. It'll be the quality of the, the franchise, its management, its ability to put high-quality products on the shelf at attractive prices for its members uh, is what will ultimately matter, whether that's a successful business and it's a successful investment. Um, so that's, that's um, I think, does take a bit of mental discipline to steer away from the headlines and to remember that you know, we own businesses, we don't own mm-hmm. economic variables, and we own businesses, we own the long-term outcomes of the businesses, not the short-term outcomes and those economic variables will matter very little to the long-term success of good businesses. Fantastic, great great way to wrap it up, mate. I do appreciate you coming on the show again, Stephen, uh, being generous with your time and some of your wisdom today. We'll be back with another episode. Once again, appreciate it. Thank you, Owen. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.